Hey everyone, I just wanted to hop on here and do a little introduction for you before we get into today's episode. I was so excited to do an episode on King Charles the Fat because obviously who doesn't love some royalty? However, I looked at a few different sources and all of them seemed pretty reliable, yet a lot of them did not agree with each other as much as I'd like them to. This isn't to say that I can never do an episode on King Charles the Fat, but it is to say that this episode will not be that episode. Right now, I'm in a very long process of moving in, sorting out, and deciding what goes where in my new place in the great state of Kentucky, and I have not been well, (laughs) and it's been a process to say the least. This is a large part of why my content has been so sporadic. And did I mention that I got COVID for a second time and completely lost my voice for a few days? At this point, it's needless to say, but yet I'm going to say it. Um, I've been completely overwhelmed with the new version of my life and being off my meds until I found a doctor to prescribe them. I don't have the patience for trying to sort out information from the mid 800s. You know, so eventually, yes, we will hopefully get to learn about the great grandson of Charlemagne. But today we are going to focus on something different. I promise my goal is to still open your mind to something new that you maybe have not heard of, or at very least you may not have heard of in depth. But I'm also always taking suggestions for episodes. So if you have any unique ideas for a topic or even just have a question or want a shout out, please feel free to email me at thingsifindinterestingpod at gmail.com. All right, let's get the show on the road. episodes back, we spoke about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I guess you could probably say it wasn't technically about the assassination. It was more about John Wilkes Booth and his brother, but you can't really tell John's story without sprinkling in at least a little bit of good old Abe's story. And you can't really leave the story at the end of Abraham Lincoln's life because that's really not the end of the story. Lincoln was laid to rest But obviously, he left a legacy. There are stories upon stories about his witty sense of humor, his sleepless nights, his anxieties, his famous speeches, and his love for theater, but as far as I can tell, there's not a lot spoken about his widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, or how they met, or what became of her while he was in office, and even after he passed. I think it's really important to get to know Mary Todd Lincoln because she did more than just bear him four children, three of which would not make it to adulthood. She did more than stand next to him during his political career. She had a life. She had a personality. She had her successes and her downfalls. She is said to have had erratic behavior, to throw major fits, to be hysterical at times. And 
I was very interested to find out whether or not these accusations of her negative behavior had to do with her overall, the overall view of women in her time, or if she was just maybe misunderstood, or was she actually unstable? I mean, who could really blame her, really, if she was a little, whoo, <laughs> you know, out there? She lost three of her four children, one of which died in infancy, the other in childhood, the other in his teens. She lost her husband due to a gunshot wound to the head while she was sitting right next to him. And she was in the public eye for most of these tragedies. And during her husband's presidency, a major civil war was taking place in the United States dividing families and friends, even her own, in the very same country her beloved husband was leading. The very same country that she loved and called home. She was expected to be radiant, elegant, frivolous, but frugal. She is expected to appear as though she had it all together at all times, even when she didn't, even when nobody did. And God forbid she show any emotion other than a smile and a grateful demeanor, especially on the arm of her husband and in the presence of others. That is a tall order for anyone to keep their composure with. And if she had any mental health issues, for example, even depression or anxiety, where throwing major fits are not normally part of the diagnosis, it's enough to cause someone to go completely mad. I can't imagine how I would be in that situation, being a worrier myself. Now, specialists say that she had pernicious anemia, which is now thought to be caused by an autoimmune disease which are not caused by anything anybody did or by anything anybody could have done differently. It's not curable, but it's treatable with shots of vitamin B12. With symptoms like fatigue and lightheadedness, pallor or an unhealthy pale complexion, a sense of pins and needles all over your body, not fun, shortness of breath, weight loss and inflamed skin, It's hard to believe that she could be anything but erratic. It was nobody's fault, really, of course, but the poor woman was blamed in history for her behavior that she could not control. She was considered abusive toward her husband, both physically and mentally. But does that make her bad? Or does that make her a victim of her time? So I trust you as my listeners to keep an open mind as we go through this episode together. As we all know, not everything is what it seems on the surface. At very least, we can decide for ourselves if she deserved all of the flack she got or if she deserves some compassion and understanding or medical help instead of blame and accusations. And even though at the time of her adulthood, mental health was still very taboo, When you look at it, the tragedies she endured in her lifetime, it's amazing that she made it through it all. This is Things I Find Interesting, and I'm your host, Kelveda. 
Mary Ann Todd was born on December 18, 1818 in Lexington, Kentucky to Robert Smith Todd, a well-off businessman and slave owner, and Eliza Parker Todd, who also came from a family with money. Her mother tragically died in 1825 during childbirth. Little Mary was just six years old. Her father remarried soon after to a woman named Betsy Humphreys, who was a Southern belle, though it sounds as though she was close to being labeled as a spinster because she was already 26 years old and had zero marriage prospects. And according to the Feather Foster blog, the courtship was an odd one. It seemed more like a business transaction. And Robert was needing a mother to raise his children. So apparently Betsy was really quick to criticize and very rarely praised the children. She also had zero tolerance for kids being kids. She did her best to stay away from the kids, staying locked up in her bedroom, using her many pregnancies and ailments as excuses to not deal with the children on a daily basis. You see, Betsy herself was raised in a strict home by her own mother who influenced the Todd girls, specifically Betsy's stepdaughters, to become and act like ladies. And though the Todd girls did not love this version of their upbringing, it did bring them up in such a way that they had aristocratic behavior. And as Betsy had wanted, they became ladies, I guess, as opposed to hooligans. People who knew Betsy were known to have said that she was rather detached even from her own eight children that she had, separate from her stepchildren. It's not really 100% certain, from what I can understand, if Betsy was actually a wicked stepmother and mother, or if she was just maybe really unhappy. I imagine that back then, if you didn't want to be a spinster, you got married even if you weren't crazy about the person you were marrying, a.k.a. you dealt with the prospects you were given. I also imagine that being a spinster meant that something was wrong with you, according to public opinion anyway, and especially with people from higher societies. So is it possible that Betsy didn't really want to marry a middle-aged man who already had six living children of his own? Yes, very much so. But is it possible that when Betsy moved to Lexington to be with her new family, she was a little taken aback by how she was treated by her new stepchildren and their maternal grandmother who had stepped in to help raise the children after Eliza died? Also, yes. From the sounds of it, Grandmother Parker was not happy that Robert was already marrying a new woman. She felt that it was too soon for that to happen, even though it appears that they courted through letter writing for at least 18 months, which 18 months was considered the proper mourning period before remarrying at that time. And I don't know if they married right after that 18-month mark, but I do feel that if people thought it was very soon, it could have quite possibly been right off right after that mark or right around there so it's 
also believed that because she was not happy with her son-in-law's decision to marry so soon after her daughter's death, that maybe Grandmother Parker poisoned the well a little bit. Maybe if she had been a little more encouraging to her grandchildren about accepting the situation and being on better behavior or being more welcoming to Betsy, would it have changed anything? Possibly. As we've gathered, Mary really disliked Betsy, so she did her very best to avoid her by spending a lot of time with her grandmother Parker until 1835 when she was able to enroll in a boarding school at 17. Then, in 1839, she moved to live with her older sister Elizabeth, who was married to a man named Ninian Edwards who lived in Illinois. Mr. Edwards' family was very involved in politics, and his father was actually the former governor of Illinois. And because Mary was around so many politicians of the day due to her living arrangements, she met a young man named Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was, at the time, a struggling lawyer. But the couple hit it off. And they got married in November of 1842, but not all was sunshine and flowers because before marrying, Abe actually broke off the engagement for a while. And once they were back together and getting ready to get married and to spend their lives together, Elizabeth, Mary's sister and guardian, objected several times to the union, but love had its way and they got married anyway. Now, side note, I have not been able to find out why Elizabeth objected to the union. And I'm not from that time era, so I'm completely speculating here. But I would assume that it was either she felt her sister could do better socially or that she felt her sister could do better to find a guy who wasn't going to be so wishy-washy with her heart. And perhaps it's a little bit of both. It wouldn't be the first time that in-laws didn't like the person that their youngest was married to. So, of course, in the early stages of the marriage, it's said that Mary was very happy, even though they lost their son Edward as a toddler slash baby. But in 1862, when they lost their son William in his childhood to typhoid fever, she started to unravel a little bit, and it wasn't just noticeable to people who were close to her. And of course, at the time, they had no diagnosis for this behavior, just the knowledge that her reputation was tanking, and Abe and his people were afraid of her also tanking Abe's reputation. You see, she was said to spend extravagantly. She, as the first lady, was in charge of things like decorating the White House and dinner parties with entertainment for important people at the White House, for example. Normally, this may not be as frowned upon, but with a war going on, she started quickly running out of brownie points with the public. And I have a theory about that, but I'm going to wait until the end to tell you so that I don't taint your thoughts on the subject. And so not only that, and not only was that her main excuse, she also spent money on lavish gowns. She was basically a shopaholic, but 
As with any addiction, the shopping was her version of self-medicating. She had a huge hole inside of her. And because therapy really wasn't an option, she took matters into her own hands. Even, rumor has it, using money that wasn't really set aside for the personal use of the Lincolns. It was more set aside for the White House to use for the country that was at war. This really left a bad taste in the mouths of Americans. But sadly, that wasn't even the beginning of why she was very unpopular among the people. As we said before, Mary's family was among the many families that were divided by the Civil War. Both the North and the South saw her as a traitor. Her family owned slaves, but she and her father did not agree with slavery. And as time went on, she was more and more vocal about her disagreement with people owning slaves. Now, not that this makes everything okay, but her family was minimally involved with slavery. They were not going to auctions and joining the slave trade. Each member of the family had a slave assigned to them as their personal attendant. As far as I can understand, they treated them fairly decently compared to most slave owners of their time. And like I said, this does not excuse them owning slaves at all, okay? Of course. However, they justified it because their slaves were like respected yet free of charge maids and butlers, basically. The older that she got, the more outspoken Mary got. She was by no means stupid. She had a great education, and she was taught to be fluent in French, among many other things, that only the affluent women of her time were allowed to learn, but mainly, nobody really wanted to hear from a woman, especially this woman. Her husband, though, always loved her mind and her witty tongue. He is said to have stated at a White House gathering, upon watching her with guests, that she is just as beautiful as she was the day they met, and that he fell in love with her when they were young, and he had never fallen out of love with her. Hashtag relationship goals, am I right? As one would expect, that night in Ford's theater, where her husband was assassinated while sitting right next to her, really sent her over the edge. Of course, in 1865, there were many widows in the United States because of the war, but she was the very first widow of an assassinated president. She mourned alone, mostly, and she wouldn't let anyone near her unless it was family or a close friend. She lived for 17 long years after Abe's passing. She had debts that needed paid and, like most widows, had to learn to live on a fixed income. She was only able to live off of $1,500 a year. She tried to scheme her way into either getting her debt forgiven or getting it paid off, but it never worked. She finally petitioned Congress to receive a pension of $25,000, which would have been Abraham's salary for that year had he lived, and in today's money, that would be equal to receiving $566,427.48. But soon after, she started writing letters to Congress again, asking them to give her a yearly pension like they were doing for the Civil War widows. They finally agreed to give her $3,000 a year, 
which in today's money would be equivalent to $67,971.31. Okay, I'm going to be honest here. I don't know about anybody else, but if I were given $566,427.50, it would probably take me a little while to blow through that. But as far as I can tell from the sources I've used, which seem very reliable, she kind of blew through that money going and traveling around Europe. So that is why she petitioned for a yearly sum, which is definitely more than a lot of people even still make today. A year after Mary Todd Lincoln was awarded the annual money, her son Tad died from a disease that he had in his lungs. Of course, Mary was devastated. So instead of staying put, she traveled around the United States and Canada and, on occasion, she sought out spiritualists in an attempt to communicate with her lost loved ones. And in 1875, she had a dream that her only living son, Robert, was very ill. After the dream, she rushed to Illinois to be by his side, when she arrived, her very healthy son, Robert, grew concerned about her stability and ended up taking her to court to get her institutionalized. Apparently, the trial only lasted three hours. Witnesses for the prosecution spoke of her excessive shopping and her spending habits, how she complained about her body pain, and how she would obsess over imagined dangers, for example, like her being positive that Robert was gravely ill. Mary Todd Lincoln wasn't aware of the trial actually taking place until the day it happened. So she had no time to prepare and just ended up sitting quietly through the entire thing. The jury consisted of 12 men who immediately concluded she was insane, of course. They named Robert the conservator of her estate. Hmm, what do you know? Another woman being squashed by a conservatorship that really wasn't necessary and run by a man. I feel like being a chronic pain warrior myself, I am very lucky that I didn't live back then. It's hard enough in 2022 to have chronic pain and have people on your side supporting you instead of mocking you or just completely thinking you're lazy or a, or a hypochondriac. I can't imagine being alive back then and trying to defend myself when women didn't really even have a voice. She was only in the sanatorium for three months when she was released to go stay with her sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's husband defended her in another hearing, declaring her, quote, restored to reason. The following September, Mary decided to live abroad in France, where she stayed for about four years before returning back to the United States. The belief is that she was still having pain, probably due to arthritis, and that she had very poor vision and possibly diabetes. Because of these ailments, she used two rooms in her sister's house as she continued to deteriorate. And on July 15, 1882, which was the anniversary of her son Tad's death, she slipped and fell, and it was determined that she was in a coma. She ended up dying the next day. She was laid to rest at Oak Ridge Cemetery just outside Batavia, Illinois. There is still debate today about her mental health. Was she unstable? 
Was she physically ill, causing her to go insane? So my thoughts are that there could have been a number of things going on here. Some of her behavior seems kind of BPD-like, which would not surprise me. But there are also things that make her seem a little bit bipolar, too. So borderline is usually considered to be something that happens when you've been through a trauma. Not always, but a lot of times that goes hand in hand. And poor Mary Lincoln had been through a lot of trauma, even by the time she was an adult. She lost her mother, her father was remarried, and she was raised by a woman that she was most likely encouraged to hate, and she never bonded with her. She lost not only her mother, but three of her four children, as well as her husband. BPD usually has to do with a little bit of the feeling of abandonment. And I can see, you know, especially after Tad's death, when she starts to unravel a little bit and people are noticing her change, it's possible that she was starting to show a little bit of, um, like mania and a little bit of like rage and stuff. Uh, that would come along with the BPD because everybody leaves her. Bipolar has a lot more risky behavior, like spending a lot of money to the point that it can get you into a ton of trouble. And I imagine that back then, since a woman could literally be institutionalized for being on her period, that she probably could have been treated without being institutionalized. But you know, in the 1870s, it was just easier to lock her up than deal with her. Some say that she had a vitamin B12 deficiency, better known as the pernicious anemia, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, because of her pale appearance and her erratic mood swings. And while those were not great symptoms, she probably had physical symptoms too, including the extreme fatigue or the lightheadedness, shortness of breath, or even an inflamed stomach and skin. Back then, there was no treatment, and most likely, they didn't actually have a name for it yet. I believe, of course, that all of this is obviously possible, but I also think that having arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, for example, could account for an obvious reason for her chronic pain. Plus, if she had headaches and migraines a lot, that could also account for her entire body hurting as well. However, if she was BPD or bipolar or just really struggled with depression, all of that stuff can physically hurt too. It's not just emotional damage, it's physical damage as well. Either way, I feel very badly for how she ended up. This woman obviously needed a lot of help and she was just treated like a huge problem. Like so many women of her day, she was silenced and treated like she had nothing to contribute. She led a very interesting life, but towards the end, especially after feeling betrayed by her only living child, I'm sure that she felt nobody really cared about her at all. She was surely overshadowed by her husband and his great political career, as well as his untimely death. And not that she probably really cared that she wasn't as famous or as beloved as her late husband. She obviously loved and adored him too. But to grow up in an affluent family and to have all of these hopes and dreams for your future and your bloodline to survive and all of these things that money can buy, 
you know, only to have them ripped away has got to be difficult to say the least, but she lived through it. And that's all any of us really can do, right? We live through it. Thank you for listening. This has been Things I Find Interesting. I'm your host, Kelveda. Until next time. Yay!